0: Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at vexit.com. Our bi weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig.
1: Well, hello, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I want to let you know that we really appreciate you investing your valuable time with us, and we want to do the same for you. If you have questions for professionals or topics that you would like to have covered, send an email to me directly at podcast at vexit.com and we'll find you the answers right here on Ask of Expert. You can also find all the show notes and reference materials from this episode and others at vexit.com forward slash podcast. And remember that's vexit with two x's dot com. In the life of an employment lawyer, there is never a dull moment and you never know how your day is going to unfold. Anything can land in the workplace, from sex to drugs and rock and roll. Hiring and firing is a reality. So are the expanding and shrinking of businesses, social norms, political correctness and cultural appropriateness evolving all the time. Those are just a few examples to show that you never know how your day is going to unfold. And that's what makes life as an employment lawyer exciting. Today's guests are celebrated lawyers in the labour and employment arena. Joining us from MLT Akins are Denis Teberge and Devin Worley. And we are going to be diving into some of the most asked questions by business owners. I'm excited to get going and we're so pleased to have these two incredible lawyers with us today. Welcome to the show, Denis and Devin.
2: Thank you so much. Good morning, Polly. It's great to be here.
3: Hi, Polly. Great to be here.
1: Oh, you know, this is such a hot topic these days, and this will be listened to forever. We are nearing the end of COVID, and we don't want to really date this, but people are looking at how they are going to restructure and, and prepare their business for reentry into work. And I would just love to hear from you about what are the most asked questions that you're getting right now in your field?
3: Sure, Pauly, I'm happy to go first. Obviously, working from home and the return uh, to the post-COVID workplace is is probably the number one topic right now as we've worked through COVID. I I feel like I felt like knocking on wood when you said that it's almost post-COVID because I feel like we've been there a few times before, but I think we really are in the final stretch here. And so the arrangements that employers put into place during COVID that were almost emergent or out of necessity now have to kind of go back to a new normal, right? And so we have lots of questions uh, from a variety of employers about how we can manage that and what's the best, uh, what are the best options for them. And so my general approach is always do what makes business sense. You're a business and if you don't have uh, decisions that are, that are promoting your business, that are, that are furthering your business, it's not going to be a benefit for, to you as the employer or, or to your employees, either in the short term or the long term. And so uh, you have to look, what have you done so far and uh, how can you change it going forward?
2: And I would add to have a smooth transition. This is not necessarily legal side, but more business strategies. Speak to your employees. You should be basing some decisions moving forward on data. and, And so have surveys. Speak to your employees. See what their preferences may be. It may not be that their preferences are ultimately what are implemented in the workplace, but having that buy-in from your employees will
1: certainly make any transition run more smoothly. So how do you see that happening? You know, one of the one of the main areas is companies may think, okay, now it's gonna be everybody come back to work. Uh, I hear a lot of organizations saying, well, it might be a hybrid where we have employees coming back on a select number of days. There's all sorts of conversations. So, does it all start with communication? Would use is is there a survey or something that you would go out to to learn, seek first to understand? Would that be sort of the first step? I
3: think I think that's a great starting point. Ultimately, you can't uh, implement a successful new arrangement unless you have you know, to Denise point that buy-in, right? And so, there are employees who want to come back to the office, right, on a full-time basis or part-time. There's going to be employees who don't want to come back at all or want to limit how much they come back. And if you try to, you know, put a round, uh, you know, round ball through a square peg, it's just not going to work. Right. Um, And so you have to have that buy-in. And I think it's very dependent on your workforce and the nature of your work. Uh, There's obviously some positions that lend themselves better to a remote work uh, approach or hybrid approach, maybe professional office positions, sales, you know, marketing, but even all those positions are still going to have, some component where you need to be in in person with, with a client or with your coworkers. And, and so you have to account for all that. There's all the other industries that are, were remote pre, prior to COVID and will continue to be remote in the you know, IT and, um, you know, graphics kind of areas. That's, that's been done for a long time.
2: And I think, Devin, that actually is an issue that 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 may arise is for those folks who were working remotely before the pandemic, it's gonna be difficult to have, to require those individuals to start working at the work site, because that may be a breach of an essential term of the employment relationship and can lead to a constructive dismissal claim, which means that um, essentially the, there's been a breach of the relationship that individual may decide to resign and uh, may be entitled to a notice. Um, so the, the employer might be liable. So you have to be careful as an employer and look at each employee in, in terms of their remote setup, because if they were working remotely prior to the pandemic, that may be a major breach to the employment relationship.
1: That's a good point. It, it can work both ways. And this sort of leads into, and we don't want this, this to be all about COVID, but the other big question is on the point of, are you allowed to ask people if they've been vaccinated? And there's so much conflicting information out there. And And I was having a conversation, as a matter of fact, last night about, you know, when we brought our kids up, we had to have proof of vaccination for them to go to camp, as an example, uh, to show that they have been vaccinated. So then you, you go back and say, well, isn't it time? Because of this pandemic, should there not be things in play to update policies or legislation to say, employers can ask people if they've been vaccinated because it has an effect on the other co-workers?
3: Yeah, I have a laundry list of things that I would love for government to just change the rules on whether it's (laughs) drug and alcohol testing or or mandatory vaccinations that make our lives a lot easier. But uh, unfortunately, we have to work within the frameworks that we have. Um, I don't have the premier on Smedel, so um, for sure, vaccines are a huge issue. And it affects how, how much an employer might feel comfortable with returning their employees to the workplace, right? If you know that your workforce is very high on a vaccine uptake, maybe you are more willing to say, let's kind of return to normal with some changes as compared to if you have no idea of how many people are vaccinated, you might be more hesitant. And so I've seen a variety of different ways to get at it. I mean, from a legal perspective, it's it's difficult to um, have any basis to require employees to disclose their vaccination status to trigger privacy obligations and human rights obligations as well in doing so. But there are ways to do in terms of, For larger employers, you can certainly have things like vaccine clinics either through your facility or or shared, you know, have an option where you kind of schedule something. And if you know that you have lots of employees who take the opportunity, that's going to give you a good sense of what the uptake is. There are employers in certain industries, such as the healthcare industry, you know, small to large, where because of the eligibility requirements for uh, vaccines earlier, when they started rolling out, you had to establish that you were, in fact, you know, certain profession or worked in a certain area to, to um, be eligible for a vaccine. And so you could ask employees to, you know, uh, take a form with them to get the vaccine. And that would give you a way of, of getting a sense of how many employees were actually doing so without having necessarily that confirmation that they had done so. Another way I've seen it done is if the employer is gonna provide an additional benefit to employees, such as a paid leave, paid vaccination leave, uh, there was a way to then ask employees in order to qualify for the leave that they have to provide, you know, satisfactory proof that they in fact went and got the vaccine that's changed slightly to the province unveiled. I think it's a three or four hour, um, uh, vaccination leave that's, that's required now for employers, but still, even in, under that legislative vaccine leave, there is a, a requirement on employees to provide, I think something to the effect of satisfactory evidence of a vaccination. And so an employer has some discretion there, of what they're going to ask for. And if you have a sense, if you have 50 employees and you've had 30 or 40 requests for paid vaccination leave, that's going to give you a good sense that, you know, a sizable majority of your, of your workforce is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And you don't get into the realm of requiring disclosure or forcing employees to get vaccinated with those kind of approaches.
2: Right. It's, it's giving that opportunity first to your employees to demonstrate their voluntariness to go and get vaccinated. And that could be a
1: great indicator um, with respect to vaccination rates in your workforce. And is it appropriate to do an anonymous uh, voluntary survey of your employees to ask if they've been vaccinated or does that cross the line?
2: I think if it's performed by a third party, then any employee hesitancy would likely be decreased. I think... That's, uh, again, it's the privacy aspect, and you have to to ensure that the private employee information is kept confidential and very much limited to the purpose of why it was collected in the first place. And so if you do believe there's hesitancy in your uh, work site, I haven't come across this yet. It could be that you hire a third-party service to, to conduct a survey. Devin, what have you seen in terms of surveys? I haven't come across that in terms of the vaccine
3: yeah, it's an interesting concept. I think the key would be, are you requiring employees to disclose it or not, or is it voluntary, right? And I think both from a legal perspective and also just uh, so much of employment law you know—is is what is the law and what are your legal obligations on things like privacy and human rights. But there's also just a lot of what makes kind of common sense and what's going to affect your employee morale, retention, your workplace culture. And so an employer who has lots of mandatory <laughs> approaches to things you know, that's going to set a certain culture in the workplace. And so to the extent you can, you want to be collaborative on as many items and leave the mandatory, you know, strict rules to, the, the, you know, where you draw a line in the sand. you know, we're going to prohibit employees from, you know, consuming drugs and alcohol in the workplace. You know, that, that's, not, that's not a collaborative approach there. Um, but, you know, again, vaccines, vaccine hesitancy is real. Anti-vaccination sentiment is real. If you don't approach this in a delicate way, are you going to set off employee morale issues and conflicts between coworkers, conflicts between management and and their staff?
1: You touched on the word employee culture, and I think it's such an important one. You know, many businesses, this has been a roller coaster ride for them. Culture does get affected, and with people moving to working remotely, uh, that also uh, affects company culture. So why don't we spend a little bit of time on there? It was interesting. I was just noticing a a quote by a a public company that acquires other companies. And when they're looking at um, acquisitions, the direct quote is the culture of a business is not the main thing. It is the only thing that they look at when acquiring a company. The importance of company culture is so important. And many of these things that we just talked about can be better handled if you have that consistent, strong company culture. So in your experience, Can we just touch a little bit on what makes up a great company culture?
2: Again, this is kind of more business, general business. I think first, what kind of industry is your workplace situated? I'm thinking first sales force. for instance, that culture may look as you have independent employees, Salesforce, and they come together multiple times a year at conferences and various conventions. That could be some kind of culture. You can have Everyone working in their offices daily, they're meeting at the water cooler, they have the chit chat, they're building that one-on-one, there's synergy there, maybe someone has an idea, can't figure out how to, or has an issue that they're dealing with, and then they meet with someone at the water cooler, and all, all of a sudden they've come together, synergistic, and all of a sudden they've come to a great solution Great idea. So culture is all dependent, I think, on industry, the size of the workplace, uh, what kind of work is it? A lot of collaborative work? Are you working on a lot of projects? Is it more independent? And so I think as an employer, you want to be very much in tune and aware of what kind of. First, if you don't know what the culture is, then maybe there is a lack of culture, and you need to really delve into that and get to know your people more and and get a sense of what your employees. Again, having that. Communication with employees, understanding what they want in terms of a workplace culture. But if you are tuned into what the culture is, is it's continually have to nurture it and and be creative and and find solutions to uh, to maintain and foster that culture, but also to try new things and try to expand and build on it as well.
3: I think it's still one that isn't necessarily driven by legal considerations, but just kind of some best practices would. Uh, Number one is consistency. Workplaces that have inconsistent supervision, inconsistent rules being enforced, inconsistent expectations of employees from performance are going to be a a breeding ground for toxic relationships and animosity between employees. Um, So consistency in everything and effective supervision. You need a great management team. You need a great supervisory team. And that goes from whether you're a five-employee you know, mechanic shop or your 100 uh, you know employee retail environment, if you don't have managers who are respectful, effective, fair, consistent, again, it's going to result in a bad workplace culture. And we'll often have a client who may not have dealt with us previously come in, and um, it's fairly common that they aren't in compliance with, you know, the regulations that are found in a piece of legislation, and the regulations are 200 pages, right? I and mean, we say, OK, well, this procedure isn't exactly compliance, but that's a far easier thing to correct by revising a policy or saying well, you should do your, your payroll slightly differently or you should modify your employment agreements than an employer coming in us saying, you know, I have high turnover, I have concerns that a union might be coming in, I have bad workplace morale, I, I can't re- recruit people, and we have to say, OK, well, it's because you know, Jack in the management team, no one likes him and he's toxic and, and you've established that workplace culture. And in and, and some instances, it might be many Jacks, right? There might be many people that uh, are, are breeding that, that bad workplace culture. And so that's a lot harder to deal with. And if you come to someone like us too late, you know, and you already have the union application now, you know, now you have a union likely coming in and, uh, and that's how you're going to be dealing with your workforce for the you know, foreseeable future.
2: Yeah, and Jack may be leading the organization without knowing that they're a Jack. So there are lots of different, and I I agree, that consistency. First, you need to have policies in place, drafted and understood and well communicated, but then those need to also be consistently understood, applied and reviewed over the years.
1: Let's touch a little bit, you know, if we unpack that and talk about the sort of handful of policies, the must-haves, you know, and, and throughout the lifetime of an entrepreneur and business owner, if you ask them, what are the most challenging times that they've ever had in their business career? More times than not, it's related to employee situations. You know, having to terminate somebody is devastating. You know, breach of trust. All the things that can go on, you know, we're human. Nobody's perfect. But those are the things that keep business owners up at night. So what are those things that we should have in place? And and really, you know... Companies that have, you know, a value statement, sort of a ethos of, here's our operating structure. You can make mistakes, but if you stay within these guidelines, because here are our values. In my experience, in the companies that I've researched and and looked at, everybody knows what their values are. And if they live their lives according to the values of the company, then they have a better chance of having a great experience while they're working with that company. So what would be the top policies to have in place, number one? You touched on employee agreements.
2: I was going to say that they're, they're both captured an in individual employment contract as well as certain policies that reflect legislation. So I would think that most employers should have policies that reflect workplace and health and safety legislation, um, as well as the Human Rights Code, which could would likely be reflecting a respectful workplace policy in addition. And so both of those could be contained or standalone from what's called an employee handbook, which would set out usually the employer mission, as well as a number of provisions setting out the workplace expectations.
1: Anything to add there, Devin? Maybe specifically on things to include. And, you know, the human rights uh, piece is, that's a very complex and, and complicated, I'm sure. And it can only be getting more challenging to make sure that you include everything. So when you think about human rights, what all is included in that?
3: Well, to Denise's comment, yeah, the way you usually implement it is is through respectful workplace policy. It's going to have uh, harassment uh, provisions, um, and then you can also deal with discrimination in the workplace through that. That's really one piece. That's ensuring that your employees aren't engaging in harassment with each other and that there is a discrimination and racism in your workplace. But really, human rights goes beyond policies. It goes into every decision you make as, as an employer, and um it goes into your hiring and recruitment approach. It goes into promotions. It goes into uh, accommodation, which is a massive area. And, you know, to Polly a bill after point there, I mean, with COVID, we saw a lot of accommodation cases coming through. I'm sure... I can't imagine an employee who didn't have to deal with an employee going to them saying, you know, my kid's school is closed or they ha- it's gone fully remote. Um, how, how can I reconcile that with my job, which I'm supposed to be at eight hours a day, right? And so that's an accommodation issue. That's a human rights issue. That's, that's family status. Um, that's a protected ground in our legislation in Manitoba. And so an employer who doesn't consider that and, and delve into, you know, what, what are the circumstances that require accommodation can I accommodate that as an employer, and what does that look like? If you don't go through that procedure, and it might result in a, in a the result being that um, you can accommodate it, uh, but if you don't go through that procedure and you can, if you don't consider it, you're going to end up with potential human rights complaint, and even beyond a human rights complaint, you're going to end up with now a frustrated employee who is having to balance their, their work obligations with their personal obligations. And in my experience, nine times out of ten, an employees going to choose their personal obligations over their work obligations, right? And so now you have an employee who's likely leaving, uh, is frustrated, and, and that's a potential liability for some for a complaint or some other uh, adversarial approach.
0: Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundell and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt@soundoff.network, Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.
1: So I imagine are you now getting approached, uh, I, I can imagine... One-off instances, having calls coming all the time, are there new things that can be done for companies moving forward? You know, if we have another pandemic two years down the line, what can employers do now to set themselves up from the standpoint of making sure that they're, they're protecting their employees and their workforce?
3: Yeah, I think, I think what the pandemic showed is that employers are more flexible than maybe we thought they were. For, for many years, you would have heard things from employers like, well, there's just no way we could op- operate that way, right? Uh, flexible schedules or uh, alternate days or, or remote work would have just never been even considered as an option for certain employers. And, and to credit employers and, and all of us who were dealing with these issues at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, things were made on the fly, and, but many of them worked quite well right? And, um, you know, businesses continue to operate. I mean, sadly, many businesses did have to do workforce reductions and and close up shop for a period of time. And I'm hope, I'm optimistic that many of those businesses are able to come back now. But I think that sh- ideally, we would have had more time to deal with those things. And so when we are looking forward now, I think take that time to reflect on what you did, what changes you made, what worked and what didn't work. And if you can look at other examples from, from different employers, from different industries, from different countries even, and, and try to implement some of that. And, and I, I hope we don't have pandemic policies going forward. I hope, I hope that this isn't something we deal with every five years or 10 years, but certainly be, be mindful too that when, when push came to shove, your workforce was adaptable and flexible and that your management team was as well and that you were able to address a lot of these issues.
2: I would add for any employer, if you don't already have some kind of emergency plan in place to become flexible, tackle something like a pandemic, something like no one really anticipated this, I think. But also, it's a time to review and revise your policies right now to ensure if there's any lull right now, you're finding some time. It's not as pandemic crazy. Take some time to review your policies and revise them, as uh, Devin mentioned Look at what worked, what didn't, should some of that be put into or developed into a policy or be included in another policy so that you're ready and prepared if this happens again. And, and probably have it be of a more general nature rather than pandemic specific, but to really look at your policies. If, and if they don't exist, then to turn your head to creating and developing policies.
1: So discussing mental health has become far less taboo over the, well, I guess the last decade, really. And with the stressors of modern life and psychological toll and and even some of the, there's going to be some post-COVID uh, trauma that people are, are dealing with. You know, how do you deal with employees going through mental health and what can companies put in place to uh, make sure they're protected? Does this all fall under, you know, an employee benefits program or what can they do from a legal standpoint to deal with mental health in the workplace?
3: I think we need to differentiate, and I think it's a fair differentiation to uh, look at what is the day-to-day stressors of professional life, of work life, of home life, uh, personal life, and then also what what are diagnosed medical conditions, mental health conditions, right? And so when you have an employee who comes to you and they disclose a mental health condition, you know if it's the former, the best way to deal with that is something like an employee assistance you know assistance program um, you know Blue Cross offers that, and many other insurers do as well and If you can deal with it between you and the employee as an you know uh, if they need to take some time, you know and try to deal with an informal matter but where where it is uh, an employee coming to you and saying, "I have a diagnosis my- do- oh, here's a doctor's note, here's medical documentation that does trigger uh, you know the disability. Uh, under human rights legislation, and that's going to trigger your duty to accommodate. And, and the first step for an employer in that, per, in, in that position is you need to get the right information in your hands. Uh, you know, what is their medical condition that they need accommodation for? What's the uh, work-related restrictions that they have in place? What's the duration of those restrictions? Are they undergoing treatment? You can sometimes ask, ask that question if they're requesting a pretty serious accommodation, but so then employees is going to have an obligation of their own to uh, take steps to improve their, their mental health and, and, and get better, right? Uh, the burden doesn't fall solely on the employer. But once you get that information, and that may sometimes take several kind of requests back and forth for more details, you're then in a position to consider what exactly their restrictions are and what can I do to accommodate that, either in their current position or alternate position, modified position. And so mental health is often... They might need flexible schedules. They might need time off work, you know, come back on a gradual basis. Um, they might need changes to their duties. They not, might not be able to handle high-stress um, duties for a certain period of time. So whether you can accommodate uh, the change in their duties and, uh, and responsibilities.
2: I'm just going to take a few steps back just to, for those who aren't maybe necessarily familiar with human rights legislation, um, there are enumerated, there's a list of protected characteristics under the code and disability being one of them. And so mental health um, struggles, diagnoses would fall under that protected characteristic. And to add to um, Devin's point, an employer's duty to accommodate is not necessarily only triggered by an employee outright telling the employer that they have a mental health struggle or challenge if the employer has right to believe that there's an issue that duty may be triggered and they may need to take steps to approach the employee um, and to see at least have a discussion with them and see if there's anything that they can do or open up that line of communication to the employee.
1: So if somebody is on leave due to mental health and it goes on for months are you required to hold their position inevitably or are you able to make them a position that you have to accommodate them in, in whatever way, like where is the onus on, on that? Like if somebody's working in a a factory as an example and assembling a specific part and they're not skilled to do anything else, do you have to hold their job forever?
3: It's a very case by case consideration, but I think uh, the general rule is going to be that uh, you have to accommodate the employee based on their status at that time. And, and and so if the if the direction from the doctor is they need to be off work completely, then they're off work completely. That's the accommodation. And then when they are clear to return to work, or that you know they're now able to perform some amount of work or fit to work, that's when you then have to look to see, okay, well, can I return them to their current position, uh, or is going to be an alternate or modified position. It's going to be tough, certainly for smaller employers to have held a position there kind of vacant or just being filling it on an informal basis, a casual basis. And so for some employers, it will make sense to fill it on a term basis and kind of just deal with it when the employee comes back to see whether you can either move that person to somewhere else in the organization. But obviously, the more positions you have, the easier that process is, right? But in many circumstances, when the employee comes back to work, you have to pretty much take an organization-wide perspective. And say, well, based on those restrictions at that time, where can I accommodate them uh, without, without incurring significant costs, without incurring health and safety risks to them or to their coworkers, and without having to get into, the, you know, obviously, you have to train an employee who has no qualifications or skill in a certain area to move from a completely different position.
2: And I would add you you always look to the legislation. And so they may be on a leave that's protected by legislation, and so they're entitled to a certain period of time. And so that's a protected period of time as well. Um, that doesn't disallow an employer, and Devin, you may have thoughts on this, but to to hire a, a short-term contract in order to cover, you often hear someone's on maternity leave and there's someone who's on contract who will cover that absence. And so I, I don't necessarily see why. Uh, why that wouldn't be the case for uh, a medical leave as well.
1: So we alluded to in our introduction, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And not that, you know, every, it gets everyone's attention, but there are several instances, and I've I've had a few myself, and it's always helpful to know how to deal with situations. For example, if you know somebody is drinking on the job, and it might be just that you smell uh, alcohol, what is the best way to deal with that?
3: In yeah, it's I'm certainly one. It's it's certainly one where, um, yeah, you, you those phone calls will come in. Um, I, I, many employers can go a long time without having to deal with it, but you know, I, I, many will have to deal with it at some point. And so, it's it's one of the most difficult situations because it's triggering a lot of of different things. It's triggering, obviously, potentially accommodation if the if the employee has. An addiction that's considered a disability. Uh, it's also a workplace safety and health risk, both for the individual and to their coworkers. And um, and it's just so antithetical to the rules. And you know, you expect employees to be at work attentive, productive. Um, and and so it's also potentially a discipline issue. And so my my general advice when you when you, if you found the employee at work and they're either intoxicated or or appear appear to be impaired. Generally, you know, safety is is number one, health and safety is number one. And so is the employee safe? Do you need to call emergency services? Can you contact their emergency, you know, individual family member to to get their involvement? And uh, the next consideration is if you do have an alcohol and drug policy in effect that uh, allows for testing, you want to send the employee for a drug and alcohol test to confirm that, you know, your suspicions at that point that they're impaired are in fact real that they are that they you know do test positive for either you know high alcohol levels or else for a drug, and so then that gives you the evidence that they have been impaired, and then it's really at that point of consideration: well, is this a one-off misconduct issue where the employee is not claiming that they have an addiction, or is it an addiction where the employee is saying this is the rock bottom for them, right? This is them recognizing there is a problem with uh, with their addiction and that they do need help and then that's going to trigger your accommodation process to give them leave. Uh, I would put an obligation on them to seek uh, treatment, uh, which can take a variety of forms, With is obviously the more typical kind of in-person residential facility, or else you can do you know, appointments as well. And, and then you get to the point at that point where it is so case-by-case case basis.
1: So can you just touch on what would be included in the policy? So you can have a policy that includes... Random uh, drug or alcohol testing?
3: Well, the policy always starts with that you prohibit it at the workplace. So you can't be impaired at work. You can't have possession of drugs or alcohol. And you can always do a car vote for if there's maybe a, a work sanction function, that kind of a thing. But you have that prohibition in place. And then the logical way to enforce it, and you have the provision that employees can be disciplined or terminated for breaches of it, the way to enforce that is through generally drug and alcohol testing, right? Because you might have signs of impairment that could be caused by other things, that could just be a misunderstanding, you know, things like smell. One employee says, yeah, I smelled that. The next employee says I didn't smell that, right? And so it's, it's difficult to establish um, hard evidence that you have uh, an impairment without having the testing. Random testing is very difficult. You could talk about that for a very long time. Random testing is very difficult and, and is not going to really be uh, legal unless you have an established general use of, of, that, of drugs or alcohol in the area. And there's lots of other criteria. And so, but generally, certainly, if you have kind of post-incident testing or reasonable cause, so post-incident where an employee has maybe crashed a vehicle and you have some other reasons to suspect impairment or reasonable cause where you have those signs of impairment and you might actually list what those signs are, you know, slurred speech, uh, red eyes, smell, um, you know, delayed response, that's going to trigger a, a, a right to test if you have that policy in place. Right. And like I said before, what you do with that result is going to depend on whether it's more of a misconduct issue or whether it's in fact triggering a, an accommodation process.
1: So if you don't have the policies in place, you can't do the testing.
3: That's usually what the rule is. Uh, it makes it certainly more difficult because the employee can say, well, I didn't know that was the expectation of me. And now you've imposed, you've breached my privacy rights. You know, I don't have to comply with that request. I might still advise an employer who doesn't have a policy in place to, to try to to try to do the testing, you can deal with the, you know, like I said earlier, it's one of the most difficult issues that you can deal with as an employer. And in some ways, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? And so uh, I think you might just want to do the testing and then deal with that once you get the test results.
2: And again, with any policy is you want to make sure it's clearly drafted, but also clearly communicated to employees. And for them to acknowledge and sign that they've read a policy would certainly help bolster but also it's the consistent application of the policy. So even if you had the policy but you've never really applied it consistently, that may be a barrier for the enforceability as well.
1: Very interesting. Oh, so many questions. Another thought I had was, you know, when it comes to employee theft or you have somebody who somebody thinks that they are are stealing from the company. Is it appropriate to have a whistleblower policy, uh, a safe way for people to vent their concerns or bring things to light, even if it's a they think they don't necessarily have evidence?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's appropriate. Uh, I think the, the the key consideration there is what's the motive for the employee, right? if they're doing it because they know that theft is prohibited in the workplace, which I can't imagine a workplace where it isn't prohibited, but um, we're going to assume that we're in compliance with, you know, criminal laws at least. So they, they see it happening and whether it's the blatant theft or they're walking out with a box full of stuff or it's the fraud and, you know, money's gone missing and they're fudging numbers, that kind of a thing. But if an employee witnesses that and they go with their manager and and they you have that kind of open door policy and they report it, and it's done in a way that's there's no self-interest involved, you know, that's going to be a a great approach generally. Now, if an employee is is doing it in bad faith to retaliate against someone, they're making up the allegations, they're exaggerating, you know, the person they're making the allegations against, they just had a dispute with them the day before. You know, those are the ones where you're gonna want to uh, have a policy in place that does indicate that employees who uh, make unfounded allegations or that are made in bad faith may be subject themselves to, to discipline, right, to avoid that, that scenario.
2: I echo that. I, and I haven't necessarily seen a separate whistleblower policy, but within the, the theft and fraud policy is both a confidential channel for employees to make a complaint, as well as a retaliation clause, as well as Devin mentioned.
1: And it just came to my mind, can we have in policies going forward that it's a requirement for employment that people be vaccinated against COVID-19? So Um, anybody being hired has to declare or is that a no-no?
3: I've never seen uh, a case that would support that. the, the most, anal- I mean, uh, the, the difficulty with COVID is, is relatively still novel from a legal perspective because you have to wait for these issues to arise and then people have to litigate them and you have to wait for the judges to make their decisions, right? So we're just now starting to see that. But uh, I, if we look at, I think the most comparable situation is the medical field where you had for for many, many years, you've had people who work as uh, paramedics or in hospital settings or medical transport settings, Um the, they are dealing with individuals who have communicable diseases, right? Even if it's just the flu, uh, but working their way up uh, to obviously more severe illnesses. And those individuals are also um, at risk of worse outcomes if they contract something from a from an employee. And so, employers will put in place policies, which I think are, are reasonable and kind of balance strike a good balances to say to an employer employee, sorry, if you get the flu shot, if you get these vaccines, and you provide proof of them. You know your PPE requirements might be lower. Um, if you don't get the flu shot, you're going to have to wear the mask. You have to put the safety glasses on, right? And so, I think there is analogies from from that from those contexts when we look at COVID. That obviously it's difficult. You have to do on a case to case basis. But certainly, if employee employees are able to provide proof of vaccination on a voluntary basis, maybe then you would relax PPE requirements.
1: So we started out our discussion and talked a lot about changes in in the workplace moving forward and it would be great if we could touch on a work from home policy and what should be included in that and shed some light for us on that and maybe Dani, do you want to start with that one
2: like any policy it should be clear and unambiguous but the big thing here is to have clear expectations of the employee so what are for instance their standard hours of work The overtime expectations, it's legislated that if you work overtime, you shall be paid overtime. However, you want to have this clearly communicated if there's an expectation that they do not work overtime, for instance. Another uh, kind of day-to-day task is how would they record their hours? And so you also want to be, uh, when you're setting out your clear expectations, be mindful of legislative standards, so the, the minimum standards in the employment standards or the terms of the collective agreement when you're you're creating this policy. Another component is what about, what about the tools and equipment that the employee needs to use? Is that, uh, what are the expectations there? Are they to have this, a full setup? Are they going to be, is that on them? Are they going to be paying using their own equipment? What kind of support will the office be providing in terms of uh, software, computer programs, whatever, depending on the industry is, what kind of tools and equipment will the employer be providing? And, um, Another aspect that's very important is what kind of privacy steps will be taken. So what kind of software programming walls will be implemented so that the employer protects its confidential data. So I think from employer standpoint, at this point, those are the major considerations. Um, I'd be happy to hear from Devin uh, with respect to any other considerations.
3: Yeah, I think one that's gotten some news uh, and, and consideration is, is how are you going to monitor employees that work remotely, right? And I think that's more relevant when you look at these long-term work-from-home relationships. Maybe in the short term, everyone was kind of prepared as a compromise to say, yeah, just go home, be safe, we'll get you set up. And everyone kind of try to make it through as best you can, right? Uh, and, and, and we'll kind of monitor it on the go. But on a go, when, you're, when you're potentially setting up a work-from-home policy that's going to deal with years of working from home, how, how do you make sure that your employees are still productive? That they're, that they're working effectively, efficiently, that they're collaborating with other employees, that they're continuing to fulfill their duties and responsibilities. I mean, the nightmare for any employer is you have all these employees at home and they're all lying on the couch, you know, watching TV. And I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that is the case for the vast majority of employees working from home, but there are employers who are terrified that's what the instance is, right? And so I'm sure we've all seen the articles of the software that, you know, the employer puts on the computer that will track every login, every log out, and then might even have the webcam on and might make sure that the employee is sitting there from 9am till 1030 when they take their first coffee break and all that kind of thing. That's obviously an extreme example, but there's a lot of other ways you can, I think, obtain the same result, uh, which is making sure your employees are being productive and, and useful. And that, that's to you know, have, it, have the supervisor check in on their, on their employees, right? Make the phone calls. have a have a daily check-in every day scheduled or a weekly check-in check-in or whatever makes sense to your business and and do random too, right? Call in at two p m and if the employee picks up and they, they you know they are saying, yeah, I'm working hard here that's that's a great way to make sure. If they don't pick up and and you find on Instagram that they're at the cabin, okay, then maybe there's another issue to deal with it, right? Um, you can request progress updates on a weekly basis, daily basis. Hey, can you let me know what you've done today? What, what projects are you tackling? How much time do you think you're spending on them? You can certainly go the route of having employees you know, mark down their hours and you know, half an hour on this task, three hours on that task. And another way to do it, which again, depending on the workplace might be the easiest, is just monitor the output. You know, as employees are producing work, you know, is, is the work that's coming out good work? Uh, is it consistent with what they would have done in the office? You know, if you're a, a graphic artist and in the office you would have usually worked on five or six projects in a week and produced X level of content, well, is that is that similar level of content still coming out from the working at home? And if it is, do you as the employer want to get into the realm of micromanaging them and and? You will they kind of scrutinize are they spending every second of their working hours uh, doing productive work, right? Because you luckily would have done that in the office anyways.
1: Well, it does speak to the modern workplace. It does look different. And I've been in some conversations with business owners who have, they're redesigning their entire office structure so that people, when they come to the office between one and three days per week, that that's their creativity and collaboration time. And so fewer offices. And then when you're at working at home, that's when you are grinding it out and, and doing the, the output work. And if you're a an Nighthawk and you want to work between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., it doesn't really matter. To your point, Devin, you start focusing more on the output and having happy employees and that are motivated because people being mobile, you don't want to lose them so a little more flexibility and being creative in how you have your workspaces and focus on the outcomes might be a good thing. And for those who don't, you know, Devin, you might want to touch a little bit on, on uh, policies related to termination or what are the other things that you work on?
3: Yeah, and, and so we've, we've talked through policies, we've talked through employment agreements a little bit. And so if, you, if you've done your homework and you set up those expectations and rules for your employees, you know, and, and then you enforce them in a consistent manner, in a reasonable manner, fair manner. Even with doing the best job, you're always going to have situations where employees are people and people will either make mistakes or or may have, you know, ill intent. And, and the reality is the workplace is a large place with a variety of different people. And so people will engage in misconduct. And you certainly have to investigate those instances. You hope that they can come up to you through your management team or through other employees, right? You know, bringing them to your attention. But once you do become aware of it, you want to investigate uh, one issue i often deal with is i have employers say i don't have enough evidence to proceed with termination or discipline in this case and they, they'll say that i need hard evidence that this employee did this so one issue is maybe something like time theft where an employee is leaving the office early or if they're working from home you know they they, they log out a couple hours early and and an employer might think that they need to have the you know the video camera on their office building watching them leave every day at three o'clock instead of four o'clock and they needed all that video evidence and they need, and it's almost like a criminal standard in some ways that they're like a detective with the police. And that's just not what the standard is. It's more of a um, balance of probabilities more likely than not. And so you want to look at things like speaking with other coworkers and assessing credibility of everyone. And, uh, and you don't need necessarily that, that hard evidence, but once you do have a case against them, you put the, put those facts to the employee, let their, let them respond. And then, assess their response. And, and in many cases, it might be deserving of, of, of discipline, which can take the form of written warnings or suspensions uh, up to termination, depending on you know what the misconduct is and how they've responded to it and how your
1: investigation's gone. Is there anything else in here that we want to add in or we'll just have to come back another day and do another one? Sounds I think good. we'll just, yeah come back another day. I'm happy to. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. You know, it is such a trying time for both employers and employees. And having help from professionals like Dani and Devin really makes a difference in helping us all live better lives because we all need both. We need productive lives, we need to be able to work, and we need to have employers that we can have a good relationship with. And working with lawyers such as yourself to help us set our policies up in the first place to make sure that we take care of our people will have more successful businesses moving into the future. So thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Polly. Thank you.
3: Please note that the
0: conversation in this podcast is for informational and learning purposes and does not constitute legal, financial, or business advice. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the SoundOff Media Company.